The Razor Show is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Did you know Patriots ticket prices tend to drop right before the game starts? GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. It's an easy-to-use app, and if I can figure it out, trust me, you're all in good hands. So head to the App Store or Play Store now to download GameTime and score awesome deals on last-minute tickets. Welcome to The Razor Show with the Athletics' Nick Underhill and Jeff Howe, plus three-time Super Bowl champion Matt Chatham. What's up, everybody? This is the Razor Show, Wednesday edition with Jeff and Nick. And the Patriots were not as busy as we expected them to be, nor was the rest of the NFL right before the trade deadline. Uh, They had a lot of irons in the fire, as they have for the last probably month and a half or so. Uh, I mean, really, you could say the the entire season with the way that the Antonio Brown thing kind of kicked things off. But they didn't get anything done after the Mohamed Sanu trade. So... They were looking at tight ends. They were certainly interested in Tyler Eifert. Uh, We saw reports that they had called the Buccaneers about O.J. Howard. That didn't get done because the Buccaneers, like the Redskins, don't seem to really know what they're doing. And uh, the Patriots, in their 8-0 roster and their historically good defense and an offense that has Tom Brady, will just have to get by the rest of the way. Whew. (laughs) No, actually, you know, I I don't think it's... A big deal. I don't think they needed to do anything, and I don't really think anybody that they could be contending with in the Super Bowl really did anything to get too much better uh, this week either. And I think the offense is is probably going to end up being where they want it to be by the end of the season. Now, adding somebody like Eifer or OJ Howard would have ramped that up a little bit more, and having more talent is always better than having less talent. And We've kind of seen how easily they've been able to integrate some guys, you know, the last few years in, on offense. So, you know, theoretically, they could have brought in Eifert or Howard and got them up to speed really quick. And, you know, all that would have been great. But I think you're seeing the right signs from Ben Watson. You know, I'm not going to say he's Eifert or Howard, but it looks like he's probably going to be good enough for what they need out of that position. The uh, seam route last week you know Brady throws him the ball he's covered that's a throw he's not making to any of the other tight ends that have been on the roster this season and you know I think that's a pretty positive sign and I think Sanu probably left something to be uh desired with his performance but overall I thought there were positive signs there and it's a matter of you know just where to expect the ball outside shoulder inside shoulder little things like that that are going to come together so I think they've done the things they need to do to ensure that they're going to be able to move the ball in the playoffs when they're playing some better teams and better defenses. So I, you know, I don't think it's a big deal that they decided to stand pat. If the prices weren't right, they weren't right. And this isn't a desperate team by any means. Right. I I thought if there was one guy really worth paying a high price for, it probably would have been OJ Howard. And it's weird because you would look at that situation and see that Bruce Arians is yet again, not using a tight end up to full capability, but the Buccaneers didn't want to trade him. But you know that that was a, a recent first round pick. But, you know, on the surface, do you say, all right, well, it's a regime change and you don't really need a high priced asset. Let's just start unloading players who don't fit the system and kind of move forward with, you know, the new draft picks in, in future years. And you think maybe you can get a guy like OJ Howard for a three. 
And but with that, you know that if OJ Howard were available, you would probably have at least a half dozen teams who would call to be legitimately interested. And then maybe that price does, in fact, kick up to a one if it really does kind of get crazy. And then you, you think about the Patriots situation at tight end and not just for this season, but for the future. And you say, is a, is a first round pick in 2020 worth OJ Howard? Because, you know, it doesn't just help you the final eight plus games of the season here, but it's also going to help you potentially for several, if not more years down the road. And the Patriots, who since that Gronk Hernandez draft in 2010, have virtually ignored the tight end position in the draft. So that would have kind of killed two birds with one stone, in my opinion there, because you you can continue to avoid the tight end position in the draft, or at least in the early rounds where you can get an impact caliber player. I don't really understand why they don't try to draft a tight end, although there was about a five-year stretch where there was always these big-name type of draft prospects who have basically fizzled out. Uh, that Austin Safarian Jenkins, Jason Morrow draft back in, I think, 2014 is probably the best example of guys who, you know, came in with a lot of hype and just never even came close to meeting it. So <laughs> I think before I get too far uh, off onto this tangent, it would have been, you know, you talk about Watson and what he brought or has already bringing. And I, I mean, I've been, I think this is what we probably expected. And it, it makes me wonder why didn't the Patriots want to work with this guy after the suspension? I mean, they thought there wasn't a whole lot there, and he's giving you more than what you have gotten, at least consistently, than Ryan Izzo and Matt Lacoste. And I think a lot of that, obviously, with Lacoste is due to injuries. Izzo is a young player who missed his entire rookie season, so he's going to be uh, rough around the edges, to say the least. Uh, but, you know, you've got a guy who has mostly been durable with Watson, whereas if you give up whatever the, the Bengals would have required you to give up for an Eifert, uh, which clearly was too much, which isn't a surprise because it's the Bengals, you can lump those in with the, them in with the teams that don't know what they're doing, uh, you could have them for a week and then you can get hurt and miss the rest of the season. So that would have been a pretty big gamble on that part. Yeah, look, the, the box situation, I'm not too surprised that they decided to hold on to him as soon as those reports started coming out. And, you know, I wonder, I don't know if that GM is, is, is Teflon or what, but I think there's probably an element with him of probably a little bit of resistance to admit mistakes after drafting uh, Aguero, the, the kicker, and him busting in the second round. And then the next year, I believe it was the very next year, they take OJ Howard and he's not a fit for their system at all in the first round. So, it's kind of like back-to-back years, you're burning picks, you know, you're firing coaches, you're not winning games. And now if the GM has to start admitting that one of the big issues with the team is that they're not drafting the right players, you're kind of shining a glaring light on that. And, you know, this goes back to a familiar refrain that, you know, I've, I've said before on here is that when you have a good team and confident executives and confident coaches, you can do the things that make your team better instead of doubling down on your mistakes. And this is, you know, a good example of the opposite side of it, but I agree with you hundred percent. And I, I think throughout the whole summer that we uh, expected Ben Watson to be the number one tight end as, as soon as that suspension was up, you know, I write a story as <laughs> the suspensions ending, you know, about how he's going to, you know, make that position better. And then he gets cut and they're back to Izzo and Lacoste. So definitely a total surprise to me. Um, but the fact that he's back and that Brady will throw home the ball when, when he's covered is, you know, it sounds like a small thing, but it's a huge thing when he's not throwing the ball with when there's anybody even within sight of Matt Lacoste or Ryan Izzo. So 
you know, that seam route isn't a pass that I think is getting thrown to, to either one of those guys. And there's a little bit of trust there. And maybe the other guys are, are more athletic and theoretically you're looking at them like they have more to give and maybe they can develop and give you some things down the line. And, and maybe Watson's, you know, a fading player and you don't see how he's going to help beyond the season. Or maybe you think the other guys can ascend beyond them at some point, but I just don't think that's, that's the case. And the trust factor alone, you know, I think gives him a, a massive edge over the other guys. So, you know, it would have been better if they could have got someone, like I said, but I think he's, he's fine. He's a fine stopgap. You know, in the playoffs, if, if you need a, a first down and he's going over the middle and there's someone in coverage, you're not afraid to throw him a tough throw and you're not afraid of him making a mistake that's that's going to hurt you. I don't think his blocking is what it used to be, but I think it's it's fine. You can get by with it. So, you know, they're going to have to keep looking beyond the season, but I think for right now, it's it's good enough. Yeah, and, you know, he, he did fade a bit at the end of training camp, and I think that was part of what led the Patriots to the decision to initially cut Ben Watson after the suspension. But I, it, I still haven't forgotten about the fact that there was that early practice and you know what Brady and Watson have with a history together and their chemistry. You know, there was an early practice in training camp when they had one of those gotta-have-it two-minute situations and Brady went to Watson three times in four plays. And th- those are the practice periods where the the team takes the most pride in and Brady was willing to rely on Watson. Now, does is Watson going to be at, at full capability in January or, or even now, the way he was in the first week of August? No, I mean, I think that's probably unrealistic for a 38-year-old tight end, but you know that Brady is at least willing to go to him in tougher situations. And you mentioned the Bucks GM. I mean, it's Jason Light. It's a guy who was Nick Casario before Nick Casario. So Belichick has a working relationship with him, as does Casario. So I, I wonder if that was, not to turn this into a Bucks podcast, but it hasn't stopped me from turning it into a Bills and an Eagles podcast in past weeks. I wonder if that's a situation where Light is looking at Arians and saying, I have a quality tight end. I gave you a quality tight end. You are going to find out how to use him. You know, and then, but those are the types of conversations that sometimes lead to a huge divide between a GM and a coach. And if you got a guy like Arians who certainly isn't going to bend to, to anybody, uh, you wonder if, if things could completely spiral out of control all over OJ Howard, which is a, a way to really big time dramatize uh, a topic of conversation here but uh it, it was just sort of a thought that I had and with Sanu I mean I know you broke it down uh, on the athletic on Wednesday when that story came out a much more thorough explanation than I can give but you know I, I'm not going to be too hard on him because you looked at and we've had this conversation already in the past with what Antonio Brown did down in Miami those first 15 or so plays that were uh, scripted to a degree, you knew that Antonio Brown was going to get the ball a handful of times early, and and they made it work. And they tried to go to, uh, to Mohamed Sanu, and then, I should say, before I get to Sanu, later in the game, when it started to get into game plan specific stuff, and they're kind of calling plays on the fly, that's when Antonio Brown started to disappear to a, a larger degree than he did earlier in the game. And I think there were, some of that could be true with Sanu, although two, his two catches were in two very important situations. He fourth and four uh, stick route for four yards to move the chains, and then that uh, over, pa- over route later in the game 
which was Brady's best throw six plays before that seam route to Watson. And once the weather started to calm down, you know, Brady was able to make some of those better throws, including the one to Sanu. So, you know, I, I liked, and you know what I liked about that before, too, uh, the over route, was that Brady checked something to the left side of the line of scrimmage. And it was hard to tell if it was to Sanu or Dorsett or, or a combination of everything. But, you know, Brady changed something before that play, and the the result was a big gain by Sanu. So you've got to at least take that as a positive. And then the uh, the fourth and four stick route, I mean, that was a telegraphed blitz. The safety moved from over Sanu on the right side of the offense to over James Ferentz. He was obviously blitzing. You knew that Sanu was going to have, or the deep safety was going to have Sanu. And, I mean, he basically ran about two and a half yards, immediately turned himself around, made himself a big target for Brady, and it was an easy pitch and catch. So little things like that are going to allow Sanu to flourish as he continues to pick up more of the offense. Yeah, the the thing with Brown, too, is like you said early in the game, they, they had the handful of plays. He was very comfortable with them. The chemistry was was very dialed in. And as the game went on, he was just in the slot running routes. And some of the same awkwardness that you saw between Sanu and Brady, it was the same stuff between Brady and Brown. And, you know, the plays that he missed on, like he's in the right areas. It's not like he was running the wrong routes. It's, you know, he hits a curl in, you know, where he kind of post up. Sanu's expecting the ball on the inside. Brady throws the ball to the outside shoulder, and it's just a little bit off, and you get an incompletion. There was another one. It was basically the same exact circumstance as that. And I think those are just the little things as time goes on. They play together. They make these mistakes. They go to the sideline. Hey, what did you expect there? You know, what do you want me to do? Oh, I'm going to put the ball here if the cornerback's there. You know, just little things like that, those conversations that are really hard to have before you're actually in those situations and those are things that they would have went through during camp they didn't have that time they're out there playing for the first time ever and now it happens they fix it and it's okay what is what happens next week uh you know the one thing i was encouraged about with sanu is that he was able to line up kind of all over the place all throughout the game you know that that over out towards the end of the game uh you know, he had a lot of plays in the slot, but also he was at the Z, he was at the X and doing doing different things, which I think is how we're going to see him used throughout. But that just kind of shows a little bit of aptitude on on how quickly he was able to, to pick some things up. And I also think it's a huge testament to, like I said earlier in the show, to the coaching staff is just, you know, they've shown it with Gordon, Brown, and, and you know, now Sanu to a certain extent, just an ability to kind of, take down this colossal beast that everybody talks about this offense people come in and I don't know you'd be able to speak to this better than me because you know you've been here consecutively throughout this whole period but you know I think before that was more of the narrative is of guys coming in having trouble with it flaming out not being able to get up to speed now they're doing this thing where they're bringing guys in on the fly all the time and I think they're probably doing a better job of setting those guys up for success and putting them in, you know, positions where they can jump in and, and excel on the fly. And that's probably something that they also had to figure out to to take advantage of, you know, the willingness of teams to trade. You know, they've become one of the, the leaders in that. And if you're going to do that, you got to find a way to make these guys work. But, you know, one of the things I notice is, is you, they will give these guys a handful of concepts and then just repackage them a bunch of different ways. And you can run the same play three or four times in the same game. And your guy's doing the same exact thing, the new guy, and it's just the stuff around them is repackaged and it looks different. And 
you can teach them a handful of those concepts, call them throughout the game, and now you can run four plays, but it's really just one thing the one guy has to know. And it's just little things like that as you go through and kind of watch how they're, they're using them. That's there's, there's some brilliance to how they're bringing these guys along. And now it's what do they do next? How do they build on that? Keep putting the stuff in, have the conversations with Tom so that there isn't this awkwardness and he's going to be good to go. But, you know, overall, I thought, I thought it could have been a little bit better. You know, if he made those couple catches, I think you're looking at it with a little bit more excitement after the first look, but I didn't see anything within this first performance where, you know, I was troubled. I would have been troubled if, you know, Sanu's running up the sideline and the ball's flying behind him. And there's just these huge signs of disarray and discomfort and, you know, an inability to to understand what he needs to be doing. I think he knew what he had to do. It was just, you know, now, now tighten it down and get that little bit of chemistry. Yeah, I mean, there were the, those two early incompletions. The the swing pass when Sanu motioned into the backfield. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that looked like Brady just sort of, you know, shanked it. I, I mean, it looked like it was a back-footed throw, and he just didn't make a good throw. Now, maybe Sanu, uh, Sanu was supposed to uh, angle his route differently and, you know, caught Brady by surprise. And Who knows? But I still think, I mean, look, if you're Tom Brady and you see Sanu, you should still be able to complete that pass when he's right. four yards away from you, right next to you, and there's no coverage on you. So whether it's the road or not, I think that was probably more on Brady. And then the other one over the middle, which I believe was his first target of the night, he sat down but uh, in the zone, and it looked like Brady was trying to lead him away from contact, and Sanu just wasn't on really in sync with Brady and wasn't able to kind of tilt his body to his left side to make that catch. So you mentioned bringing in other players uh, or other receivers. I think the difference more recently is the quality of the player they're bringing in. I think when they bring in a guy on the fly, they are doing their best to make sure that it's a solid player and a guy who they believe is going to be smart enough to do it, as opposed to just bringing in bodies and hoping for the best, whether that's midseason or, you know, even in, in training camp. I mean, they tend to load up on three or four veterans at a time and, and, kind of use it as like an open tryout now these guys more often than not in training camp especially over the last two years have not stuck I mean Maurice Harris looked like he was going to but he got hurt Dontrell Inman was I mean he was a mess from day one uh two years ago Eric Decker just decided he was going to retire from football altogether rather than continue to put himself through it and you know there's a handful of more examples like that um, where, you know, the training camp veterans didn't really stick around. It, Re- Reggie Wayne is the most famous one of all when he would sort of just show up and he thought that he was going to be able to take uh, practice periods off because he got the veteran treatment and guys were like, no, no, you, you do everything. And then he retired with, I think, 600 grand in his pocket. So all the power to him for that. Maybe it was 400. Either way, uh, a nice little uh, bi-weekly paycheck there. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean, and then in terms of, let's just spin this thing forward with the most exciting matchup of the season right now, the Patriots and the Ravens Sunday night football. And, you know, we've kind of been laughing at the Patriots' first eight opponents to an extent. Uh, This one is not worth laughing at. And I think, I I know I have downplayed the Ravens' defense through a course, uh, through a good chunk of the season, and that may still ultimately be true. I mean, they were absolutely raided in free agency, so they're not the typical you know, hard-nosed Ravens defense, or I mean, they might play that way, but they don't have the upper echelon talent across the board that you tend to see from the Ravens. So I could see this being a game where Tom Brady and the offense have some success, but how much success is Lamar Jackson and Mark Ingram 
And, I mean, he's got two backups who are averaging four-plus yards per carry, too. Uh, how much success is that running game going to have? And are they going to be able to sustain drives and keep Tom Brady off the field and turn this into one of those games where each team only gets, let's say, eight or nine possessions? And who is more efficient with them? Uh, is that the team that becomes the winner? Well, let me ask you something else, since, since this is kind of a huge talking point, it kind of plays into what you're just saying. You know, it seems like that people are starting to get uh, fairly concerned about the running game. How concerned are you about the running game? Uh, it's the only concern. So I think that's getting blown out of proportion. And I think you look at, I, I know going into Sunday, they were middle of the pack. I believe they were 16th in the NFL in yards per carry allowed. So this was something that had popped up. I mean, the first three games of the season, they were outstanding against the run. The last five, they've allowed at least, I think it's 140 yards in three of those games. So we know the Bills had some success. The Redskins had some success. I mean, the, the Redskins' high total was a, a large part of that was because of the end around to the receiver for the 65-yard touchdown. But then you look at Nick Chubb, and I mean, I know we're pretty much on the same page with this. Like, I didn't... This is the first time I'd seen Nick Chubb live, and that guy is freaking amazing. I mean, that he's, like, special to watch live. Uh, the power, the athleticism. He's got, like, a Le'Veon Bell type of vision where he can wait for a hole to open up, and then he can slice right through it. So I, I think, yeah, there are some things that need to be tightened up up front, no doubt about it. But part of that was just, I mean, Nick Chubb was having himself a day. Yeah, I mean... I'm with you. I'm not. I'm not wildly concerned about the running game. I think there's been some moments. You know, even that play where where he fumbled was another one where it's like, geez, like this is happening again. Like he's, they're not tackling well. Like the whole team on one play, and it's just like it's weird how we've seen now two of those breakdowns where it's just like the whole team like forgets what it's doing and everything happens. But I'm not looking at the the inability to stop the runner. I'm not even classifying it as an inability to stop the run at this point is something that's, you know, Oh my God, here's a fatal flaw. I think it's like you said, it's, it's in a team that's not losing games. That's dominating in everything. And there's one aspect where like, okay, they're fine. Like, it's okay. They'll, they'll do okay here. Um, you know, I, I am curious to kind of see how it, it shows up this week because, you know, obviously Baltimore does have several different ways of, of running the ball and kind of getting you in trouble there. But I also think that this is a game where they're going to probably have a very, very solid plan on how to keep everybody contained. You know, if if you're looking at Baltimore and there's the one thing you need to stop and you don't want to get beat by, it's Jackson getting out of the pocket, extending plays, running doing anything with his legs. You want to try to force him in the pocket, make him throw the ball. And, you know, he's been he's been solid at that this year, obviously. You know, he's completing 63% of his passes, has, you know, 11 touchdowns. He's he's good at it. But, like, if you're taking away that threat, and I believe that the Patriots are a team that can do that. They have the personnel. They have rangy players. There's several different ways that they can keep him uh, contained there. You know, once that happens, how do they look? So I, I still think this is a game that they're probably – gonna I don't want to say it's gonna be an easy win but like I'm not expecting it to be like a very you know dramatic game I don't think this is where the season starts you know you know I don't think this is the game where it's like oh well like can the Patriots win a close game I I still think that they're probably gonna have a pretty comfortable lead in this one I don't think it's gonna be a blowout but I I just think they're gonna be able to do the things they need to do to stop this guy and maybe maybe I'm overrating the defense but the stuff that I've seen so far like I just don't think it's going to change that dramatically in this game because they're playing, you know, their first 
quality good opponent for the season. It's just they aren't at that level yet. You know, when they play Kansas City or somebody like that, maybe maybe you start to see some you know threads get pulling a little bit. But I, I just don't think Baltimore's the team that's going to do it. Yeah, I think they're a little too one-dimensional. If you force Lamar Jackson into consistent downs when he has to throw the ball, then that's when he starts to get into trouble. You saw that last year in the playoffs. And he, you know, this isn't like, in terms of the run defense, this isn't like the 2017 team when they were just trying to, I mean, they they lowered themselves into bringing in James Harrison, you know, for that, that stretch run. That was a team that couldn't stop the run. And there was a lot of, shaky elements this team is just I think they have had a a few fluky moments more than anything else I mean the the strength of the team well I shouldn't even say this uh, any any given week you can say the strength of the team is up front or in the secondary or the linebackers whatever they all do things well I mean they're they're loaded across the board that's why they're playing 18 19 guys regularly um but I, I go back to that Bills game when, you know, Josh Allen can run. Now, he can't run like Lamar Jackson can, but he can still run. And every time he tried to uh, scramble or, or buy himself a little time, you saw that lane close or, or you saw somebody getting pressure on him and, and chasing him down. I mean, I, I like the way that guys like John Simon and Kyle Van Noy can come off the edge and really have they have that closing speed. And you're going to see that tested as much as probably ever this season on Sunday night. And uh, I think there are going to be a lot of people who continue to be impressed by the the speed in the front seven by the Patriots. Now, if you want to talk about, you know, is this going to be the thing that dooms them? No, it's not going to be the run defense. If you're worried about anything that's going to doom them, it's who's kicking the ball when they have a, an important kick in January or February. You know, that's the one thing that's going to make you really concerned. Uh, this It's not the run defense. So let's, let's end on this, this conversation here. Uh, I was just trying to figure it out because we have the athletic voting, the midseason voting or whatever. And uh, there's a category for defensive player of the year. And I've seen a lot of people put down Gilmore uh, among our people. You know, I started thinking about it from a, a Patriots aspect. I, I picked a Patriot for defensive player of the year, too. It wasn't Gilmore. But I'm just curious, uh, you know, who would who would your defensive player of the, the year be? Just Patriots. You know, who, who's your who's your give me your top three. Man, that's tough. Um, My first, you know, the first name that comes to mind is Jamie Collins. But is Jamie Collins doing a lot more than Kyle Van Noy? I mean, Kyle Van Noy is consistently, you know, he's consistently their best pass rusher. And why do they have as much success forcing turnovers? I think a lot of it stems from their ability to create havoc. And Kyle Van Noy is their best one. So, excuse me, you go with that. Uh, you could look at the secondary and say Gilmore. But, you know, is again, I think you're kind of getting too far away from the middle of the field or the trenches where they wreak the most havoc. Uh, Devin McCourty is having an outstanding season. But, again, same principle stor- sort of applies. I mean, how? when's the last time a cornerback or, or shoot, as a safety or a safety uh, been a defensive player of the year. It was probably like three years ago, and I didn't look it up, and now I'm going to look dumb, but whatever. Uh, the defensive players of the year tend to be in the front seven because sacks are that sexy number, and it, it leads into um, a lot of takeaways and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I think if I had to go top four, it would probably be a mix of Van Noy, Collins, Gilmore, and McCordy. And it's, you know, then you got to add Hightower in there too because he's had some wow types of games. 
And uh, I don't know. I mean, that's it's you get me after any given, you know, after Sunday, I would say probably Collins. But, two, you know, a week ago, I probably would have said Van Noy. So I don't know. I guess that's just what I'm thinking. This podcast would be a lot more interesting if we thought about things a little bit differently so that like we could fight every now and then and have arguments. Uh, yeah, I put down Collins, too. And my thought process was kind of the same. Like I, I struggled with him and Van Noy and. I ended up picking Collins just because I feel like his addition too also helped them kind of change their vision for the defense a little bit and use some more of these three, four principles. And I think they would have probably found a way to use them, but you know, I think it, it swung it even more in that direction. And I, I think that's been one of the big reasons for their success and the level that, you know, the level of success that they're having, not their success, but the level of success, I think it just kind of pushed it to the next tier. And then, you know, ultimately in a weird way, push Michael Bennett to the brink and then down to Dallas, which wasn't something I, I think they envisioned, but I don't think that's a big deal at all. So I went with Collins first. I would have went with Van Noy second. And my third pick would have been McCourty right now. And that's not a slight on Gilmore. I just think that, you know, it probably hurts him that they haven't had too many of these like marquee matchups where you can look at him and be like, oh my God, he's shutting this guy down. Like he, he did it very well against uh, Beckham. You know, he gave up some yards against Pittsburgh, but then, like, other than that, like, who they really played, and that shouldn't be taken as a knock on him. It's just there's these other guys around him that are, like, flashing and making all these plays and forcing you to take notice, and, you know, he's he's doing what he's doing, and it's kind of messed up, but, like, as I'm talking through this, it kind of feels like maybe, maybe that's being taken for granted a little bit, but, you know, just to be fair, it's just he, his, his, portion of the schedule I think where he's probably going to start getting that hype build up again and and shining at that level I think is probably coming up and there's more of those games ahead of him than there are behind him but yeah at this point like I just think those other guys have, have flashed a little bit more and Gilmore's just he's out here being Gilmore and I don't know I, I feel bad now that like I'm talking about this because I feel like I'm I'm underrating like one of the like really great unique talents but I think that probably just speaks more to how well like so many guys are playing right now on the defense yeah, I mean, Gilmore in four games has allowed 11 yards or fewer. So, and he's got one shutout. So, yeah. that's pretty outstanding right there. Devin McCourty has allowed. Now, Devin McCourty's not in one on one coverage a ton, you know, not as much as a guy like Patrick Chung. But still, when he is in coverage and he is tested, quarterbacks are three of 12 for 11 yards. The three completions were for one yard, five yards, and five yards. And he has a league high, or I believe it's still a league high five interceptions, so, plus the two pass breakups. So he's twice as likely to get his hands on a ball than the guy he's covering. So plus all the other stuff that he does to line up the defense and, and so on and so forth that we've covered a million times. I mean, Jamie Collins, in, in terms of disruptions, which I, you know, I don't want to get too numbers based because that's when shows start to get pretty boring, but I, I consider a disruption, a sack, a quarterback hit or a pressure. And I've got Kyle Van Noy with a team high 23. Jamie Collins has 17 and a half, and Dante Hightower has 16. So it, it's not just about sacks, where, you know, Collins leads the team with five and a half. He leads the team with eight run stuffs, which I consider a, 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 a tackle against the run for no gain or a loss. And I don't give splits. You're either the guy who's most responsible for that tackle or you're, you don't get it. And eight is outstanding halfway through the season because last year um, Lawrence Guy led the team with nine the year before that uh, Landon Roberts led the team with 10 so Jamie Collins already has a season's worth of run stuffs through half the season 
So he's he's not just doing it as a pass rusher. He's doing it on multiple fronts. And, uh, you know, then he's got the pick six. He's got a batted pass at the line. So he's just, uh, he's still jumping over field goal units. I mean, the, the guy is unbelievable. And even when he's not, you know, getting to the quarterback for a sack, uh, he's still, you know, recording enough pressures, enough disruptions to, to throw off uh, the offense as a whole. All right, so Sunday night, I'm going 31 to 17. Patriots. Wow, wow. All right, I'll, I'll take 24 to 13 Patriots. Okay, so so basically the same style again, both of them. Like, we expect them to get out quite a bit. I'm expecting one more touchdown. Defense, I, I think we're probably both kind of envisioning the same type of, of game. Uh, you got two touchdowns. Uh, or would you say 13? I got two touchdowns. You got 13? So Yeah, 13. Okay. So two field goals. Tucker will probably hit a couple from 60 because that's what he does. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I saw him miss a extra point once in real life, which was just completely one of the most shocking things I've ever seen in my life. So uh, I don't know. That's all I got. Yeah, I mean, now you know what's going to happen is the offense is going to listen to this and they're going to be like, oh, well, Jeff and Nick think think we suck. We're not going to score 40 on them. And the defense is going to be like, oh, they think we're going to give up three scores. They, you know, so that's what they do too. <laughs> uh, we're just kidding. They don't listen to our podcast. But uh, anyway, you should and tell your friends to listen to The Razor Show because it's the greatest thing on the internet. That's all we got for now. We'll see you guys next week.